Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Grace and peace to you. Lots happened since the first time we said those words together a few weeks ago. Grace and peace to you. But I want to tell you a little story, uh, something that's ha- been happening to me because I see you out and about in the world. I run into you sometimes at the grocery store or at restaurants or cafes or things like that. And a couple times since then, when I've run into you, you have said to me, hey, Brian, grace and peace to you. Like, you've literally said that. I was running into dashes the other day, not to get toilet paper, (laughs) tomato sauce. And as I was walking in, June Wolf walked by me, and we greeted each other. We passed by, and then she, she stopped me, said, hey, Brian. And I turned around, and she said, grace and peace to you with a big smile on her face. Isn't that brilliant? Well, what if we did that? What if we as a community, as a family, when we saw each other, we ran into each other at the gas stations, at the coffee shops? Probably not for a while. I recognize that. Probably not for a while with the, with the, red, <laughs> the red ominous glow afterwards. Probably not for a while. But what if we did once we ran into each other? We just started everything we did with each other, our interactions, our greetings, with grace and peace unto the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we need in our world today. So grace and peace to you. If you're watching us on the stream, I want to say grace and peace to you as well. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We're glad that you're able to worship with us in this way. Modern technology has its faults for sure, but this is one way that we uh, can connect together. So grace and peace to you as well, those who are watching uh, from the stream. If you would, uh, I'd invite you to flip over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 19 this morning. So Philippians 2, starting in 19. And if you would, I'd invite you actually to stand as we say our our prayer this morning, the Shema, which is a Jewish prayer that helps focus ourselves in. If you're on the stream this morning, you're watching from home, you're in your pajamas, stand on up too. Join us in this. No one's going to see you. Uh, You're in your homes. It's all privates. But stand. I invite you to stand as we say this prayer together. Let's focus in on recommitting ourselves to the Lord before we go to the text this morning. Say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. These are the very words of God. Paul is speaking, he says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, and he's proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. And so I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I can see how things will go for me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come too. But I do think it's necessary to send back to you Epictetus, my brother, my co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. 
So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. End of chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, friends, I'm not old, but I do remember life before the digital camera. And I've tried to explain this to my children, and it blows their mind. The life before the digital camera. In those days, you paid for a tube of negative film. And once you paid for it, you stuck it in this mechanical box, plastic box, and then it would give you 22 to 24 pictures. 24 if you were lucky, but you never quite knew exactly how many you were going to get. And because of the limited number of shots, you only took one picture of anything, right? And then once you took that picture, you had no idea if it was good or not. You took all your pictures, and then you actually had to physically bring that film to a store who would develop it for you, and it would take two to three days before you got it back to see if any of your pictures were good or not. This actually happened in the real world, friends. Anyone under age 18, this was the reality of our time. Do you remember when One Hour Photo came out? Oh, man, that was like a revolutionary thing, right? It was like one-hour photos. Like, we get our pictures in one hour. And because of that, when you look back on pictures, we don't have a lot of great, clear, perfect pictures, do we? we our standard for what a picture, if a picture was good or not, was way, way lower. You know, if you got just a couple and there was just a little blurry, you'd be like, this is good. This is a good one. Like, we're saving this one, right? You know what I'm talking about. You remember this, Right? And so it was just really hard to get clear pictures. It was really hard to get pictures that were perfect. Today, it's a lot easier to get the perfect picture, isn't it? We have basically unlimited shots now, which allows us to take, I don't know, 20 photos at one time. Basically, at this point, I do never take a single picture. When someone says smile and cheese, I go click, 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 right? We do it, right? So we, we take about 20 photos, and then we can flip through each one and decide which one was the perfect one. And then we delete all the rest. And then we crop it, right? Our, our, our phones allow us to crop and highlight and put a filter on. And we can create now the perfect picture just about every time. I don't keep blurry pictures anymore. If it didn't work, I'll just try it again. Click, 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 until you get exactly what you're looking for. It's not the way it used to be, but we're used now to very clear pictures in the world. Today we're actually talking about the perfect picture. And here in our passage this morning, Paul is laying out for us tangible illustration of what he's been talking about for a long time. He wants to give us a perfect picture. I actually just learned this week that my wife memorized Philippians 2 some years ago because she said, in her words, there was so much good stuff in it. She's like, oh, you're preaching on Philippians 2? That's awesome. There's so much good stuff in it. I said, yeah, but I'm doing the last part. And she goes, oh. Oh, yeah, I felt like I had to memorize that just to kind of get through it and say I, I have a whole chapter memorized. But I really just did that part out of obligation. I was like, thanks for the encouragement, sweetie. I appreciate that. There's so much good stuff in Philippians 2. And then all of a sudden you get to this one part, which really just feels like housekeeping. 
You know, Paul saying, well, I'm going to send you this person, and this person's sick for a while, and it just feels like, okay, this is just sort of, like, if you've ever been in a conversation, you walk into a conversation, and you know immediately, like, this is like an insider conversation, and now you just awkwardly kind of stand there for a while, waiting until you can, like, slip away from the conversation. That's kind of what it feels like here. You, you feel like you're actually getting into, like, a private conversation that Paul is giving to the, and you're like, all right, I'm just going to wait till chapter three when this applies to me again. But what Paul's doing here is actually something brilliant because what he says is, I've been talking about this stuff for a whole chapter now. I've been quoting poems. I've been quoting hymns. I've been pulling all of this good stuff at you. I'm tired of talking about it. Now I want to show you. I want to show you what I've been talking about, what it looks like in real life. He says, I'm tired of it. Let's see it. And so let's see it today, friends. What, what is it that he's been talking about? Well, in order to do that, let's go back. Let's just do a little review of the good stuff. We've got to get to a little bit of that good stuff before we get to the obligatory stuff, right? So what is he saying that gets us to this point where he wants to illustrate for us? Well, the main idea in chapter 2 actually comes and is stated in verses 3 through 5. So we actually have to start at the beginning, like normal, to look at what he's actually saying. And he says this in verses 3 through 5. This is the main idea. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of the other. Sound familiar? He's going to refer back to that later. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Don't live for your own interests. Live for the interests of others. And in fact, hey, do it like Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he describes this mindset of Jesus in this next section of Philippians 2. And he actually uses it with some sort of poem. It is believed that Paul is quoting, we talked about this last week, it's it's believed that Paul is quoting some sort of creed or, or song or hymn that was circulating at the time. This is why in your Bibles this section is indented. If you see this indented section in the middle of Philippians 2, it's believed that he's quoting something here. We don't know exactly, but it was circulating at the time. And he starts this poem with this. He says, I'm going to describe to you the mindset of Christ here because this is what I want you to be like. So the poem starts with, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. His own advantage. Now, the word advantage here is the word harpagmos, which is fun to say, harpagmos. And this means that if you have your uh, insert this morning, this is where we'll start with that. It means to snatch or to grasp or to seize violently. Very, very descriptive words here. I enjoy it. Snatch or grasp or to seize violently. You see, in Christ's divine nature, he could have done all sorts of things with it. But he didn't consider being God something to be used to snatch, grasp, or seize violently that which he wanted. Now, this idea of grasping... We come from a long line of graspers, don't we? This is really the way the world works. Since the day you were born, essentially, you were taught the way of hard pogmos, to snatch and to grasp 
and to take what you want. We are taught that the way to get ahead with whatever strength and power and might you have, to use it to get your boot on somebody else's neck, to get ahead, because it's a rat race, it's a ladder that you're supposed to climb. Whatever social power, manipulative savvy, listening ear, you can wield that for your own agenda, and you should. Right? We're taught that the way the world works is to get ahead and to snatch and to grasp and to seize violently where you can so that you can get ahead. We are taught in our world today to get the last word. And I would argue it's not just a teaching externally. We are born with a condition that tells us to get the last word. My wife has a story about her and her brothers. My wife grew up with three brothers, so she had to hold her own in the household growing up. And one of her parents' big things as they were teaching her about uh, Harpatmos and how the world tries to get ahead and tries to work and it's built into your nature and we have to turn to Christ in order to do that is they were very big on the last word. They would notice that as kids they would argue and every kid wanted to get that last dig and that last jab in. And so they began to teach the importance of not needing, when there's a disagreement, not needing to be the one that has to say the last word. But of course, because it's built into who we are as people, that just we can't do it, right? We just, ah, right? And so like people, like you say this and I'll say this and you're starting to walk away and I'll just say something else. And so the kids realized that they got in trouble if they had the last word. And so they would manipulatively switch this around. She still has memories of this, where they would do this. They were like, oh yeah, Molly? Okay, well, you get the last word then. Go ahead. You get the last word. You get the last word. Let's hear it. I'm waiting. Yeah, I didn't think so. Right? That's how they, like, to get around trying to get the last word. They would, they would use that, again, for their own needs and their own uh, sense of vindiction to be able to win at the end. Go ahead. Get the last word. Let me hear it. Come on, let me hear it. No, right? It's built into who we are. Get the last word. Get ahead. Jump the line. Have we not seen that even in the last few days? Get what you can. Stock it. Build your little cocoon. There are actually even stories now of people who saw this epidemic coming and drove around and bought up all the cleaning products they could and then began selling it on Amazon for five or six times the amount it sold for. It doesn't take long. We live in a world in which it's to we're told we're basically good, we're basically okay, and then something like this happens and we realize the world is a world of harpagmos, to snatch and to grasp and to seize violently. And this little poem begins with this praise that says, He, the Lord Christ Jesus, did not consider equality with God something that could be used to his own harpagmos. And he could have very easily. But instead, he made himself nothing. The poem goes on. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature 
of a servant. The word nothing here in your notes, the word nothing is kenosis. Kenosis, which means self-emptying or foolish, which is interesting. Because self-emptying is kind of the idea we get for nothing. Jesus makes himself nothing. He lowers himself. He, he, in fact, this word is used other places in the Bible to mean hungry. Someone's belly is umpty, empty. Somebody's uh, belly is uh, as kenosis. But then there's this other part of the world, which means, a part of the word, which means foolish, sort of an emptying of common sense. We see this word used other places in the Bible for this, uh, one of which, 1 Corinthians 15, a, a verse many of us know, it says, and if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is kenosis, useless, foolish, nothing, and so is your faith. So Christ self-empties, sure, but in another sense you can say he self-identified as foolish. He made a fool of himself. Because this backward self-emptying thing is foolish to the world. It doesn't make any sense. What do you mean you die? What do you mean you give up? What do you mean you lower yourself? That doesn't make any sense at all. No, 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 we harpogmos here. But Christ's way is much different. And because of that, it looks foolish. So not only did he self-empty himself, but in another sense you could say he made himself a fool, at least to the world. And being found in the appearance of man, he, the poem continues, he humbled himself. Now humble is the word tepanos. Literally, it means to low to or in the ground. Low to or in the ground. Literally, it means to get low to or even sometimes in the ground. But of course, metaphorically, it means lowly, meek in spirit, humble. So in a way, you can say Jesus put himself in the ground. You tracking? Jesus put himself in the ground by becoming obedient to death, it says, even death on a cross. Now, cross in Latin, crux, is a fascinating word because many scholars believe that this was actually a curse word back in the first century. As they read some of the writings and some of the things, there's a a heavy implication that if this wasn't a, a word of profanity, it was certainly not a word you used in mixed company. There's a Roman statesman and historian named Cicero, and he writes this. He writes, the mere name of the cross should be far removed from their thoughts and eyes and ears. The mere mention of them is is unworthy of a Roman citizen and even of a free man. The mere name of the cross should be far removed from their thoughts and their eyes and the ears. It's unworthy of a Roman citizen and even a free man. Man, you don't even think about a cross. And if somebody actually said the word, it would probably get bleeped on television. It was one of those types of things. This was the degree in which this word was considered. We don't even talk about stuff like that. And so Paul says that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a beep. We don't even talk about stuff like that. In Christ, the divine nature, comes down 
to die, even death on a beep. This way, Jesus' way, knows how to suffer and give. The God here in this poem, this divine nature, isn't asking who can I triumph over and dominate. It is who I can serve. And the ultimate expression of serving humanity is in this Christ who doesn't take equality with the divine as something to be taken advantage of, but lays down his life in order to serve all of humanity. How brilliant is that? That was a revolutionary concept. What do you mean the gods come down to us? And when this happens, says the poem, God exalts him. Now the word here, exalt, literally means to lift, to elevate, or to rise. So Christ humbles himself. He self-empties, which is foolish to everyone else. He places himself low in the ground, and then God raises him. Are you reading the tea leaves yet? Now, we get our passage this morning, and this is now the continuation of this theme. Now we get a sense of the magnitude of what Paul's talking about here. This isn't a housekeeping matter at this point. We find out now this is the continuation of the theme. Paul says, I want to tell you about a couple of guys who are doing this. And I've got the perfect picture. Have you met Timothy? Have you met Epaphroditus? Let me tell you about these guys. Now, first, a little bit about Timothy. Paul says this uh, in, in these first couple of verses in our passage this morning. He says, hey, remember early in the chapter, in chapter 2, when I told you to look not to your own interests, but to each of you the interests of the other? Well, let me use those exact words now to describe to you this person who is not looking out for his own interests, but those of Christ Jesus. It's Timothy, and he's, he's different little backstory of Timothy. Paul meets Timothy for the first time in Acts 16. He's a young man at that point, and Paul came to Derby. It says this in Acts 16. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystria, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. And Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. Friends, when Paul says not to look at your own interests, but the interests of others, I can tell you for a fact that this was not in Timothy's best interest. Can I get an amen from the brothers in the room? Then one chapter later, they are in the city of Berea, and it says this in Acts 17. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed. So let me get this straight. Paul riles up a crowd. They get all angry and agitated, and then Paul goes, see ya, and he bounces. And who stays behind to pick up the pieces? It's Timothy and Silas. Timothy, a servant under Paul, knowing that Paul could not be there anymore, is left to pick up the pieces. Not too glamorous, if you ask me. If you do a quick word search on Timothy, you'll find quickly that this guy gets sent out a lot. He's kind of like the gopher, the spiritual gopher. All of a sudden, there's a problem, ah, send Timothy. Oh, there's something going on over here, send Timothy. In Acts 19, 
he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Eratitis. In 1 Corinthians 4, I have sent you Timothy, my son, who I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 3, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ. Timothy gets shipped out all the time. He's putting out fires. He's sending word. He's a servant to Paul. Timothy is with Paul during the shipwreck and imprisonment himself, although only Paul gets credit for that. And even at the end of Hebrews, the author lets everyone know that Timothy has been released from prison. And so Paul says, this Timothy of mine, my beloved son in Christ, my co-worker, he was willing to endure pain, literally, mop-up duty, sent all over, shipwrecked in in prison, this guy This guy gets it. Oh, and let me talk about one of your own, Epaphroditus. He's the one that's going to carry this letter that we're reading now. He's the one that carries it back to the Philippians. Paul is writing in prison. He's there with him. Then he gives him back, and he goes back holding this letter in his hands. We We can have him to thank for even being able to read these words to begin with. He's the one that carries it back. But what we do, we don't know a lot about this guy, but what we do know is that there was some sort of partnership between Paul and the Philippian church. We read this back in in chapter 1. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to to the finish, to completion. So there's this partnership. And this word means koinonia. That's the word for partnership, which can mean in classical Greek, community, bonds, or love. But it was actually a more technical term at that time to mean a partnership, a financial partnership, a cooperation of some sort. And we read this, and we'll, we'll see this again in, in chapter 4 of Philippians, where he says, it is good, Paul says, it is good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintances with the gospel, that I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. You were the only ones that came. You were the only ones that met my needs. And we talked about a few weeks ago that in prison, even though he's in house and rest, Rome did not feel obligated to feed you. If you were in prison, Rome said, it's on you to feed yourself. We're not going to feed you in prison. You're a prisoner. And so when you were in prison, you were dependent on the generosity of friends, family, others around you for your survival. And here in other places, Paul says, Everybody deserted me. No one came to my rescue except for you. And because of the, your partnership in the gospel, from that day until now, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. I got the gift you sent me. And we mentioned this before, and, and time and time again, that this was something that was a strong bond between Paul and Philippians. He said, I was not getting fed. I was at the mercy of someone else, and you came, brought by the hands of this man, Epaphroditus. Through his hands, he was the one that delivered this gift for you. Now, let's look at a map for a second, because this would be helpful in seeing that the problem traveling from Philippi to Rome, if you'll notice, is this giant body of water called the Mediterranean Sea. 
It was not easy to get from Philippi to Rome in these days. And there's really only two options that you could go. You could either go by boat, and we know that Paul and Timothy and others get shipwrecked at times in this way. The coastlines are jagged, unbelievably treacherous trip by boat. Or you walked it all the way around. Which makes sense now when he says, hey, this guy, this guy's pretty sick. You know, he came, he got ill. He's pretty sick from doing this, from this mission. He exerted himself to the point of death for this mission. Now, some scholars surmise the sickness possibly came from exposure to the trip, but more probably was just the overexertion once he got there, even. But it all compounded, they believe, risking his life to complete your service to me, he says, Paul says risking his life to complete the service to me. Unbelievably treacherous trip to get there. Paul says, this is my co-worker who is willing to endure a treacherous journey, danger, association with an enemy of the state, got to the brink of death for the mission. This guy gets it. This guy gets it. And then he concludes chapter 2 by saying, welcome him, in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Honor people like this guy and like Timothy. You want to talk about two guys? You want to, you want to put our money where our mouth is? Let me tell you about two guys that looked like Jesus just now. The question is, are you a person like him? Are you like the perfect picture? Who is Jesus? Because this is what he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. We begin to ask questions of ourselves. These things start to come alive. Are you a person like these? Paul says, honor people like these. Because Jesus' way says you don't have to get the last word. And Jesus' way say you don't have to win. And Jesus' way says you don't have to be recognized. Jesus' way says you don't need to get an apology. Jesus' way says you don't have to get the credit. Jesus' way says you don't have to be seen. Jesus' way says that you don't have to be justified by others. Did any of those resonate with you? And if not, well, on your fill-in, there's a nice blank for you. Jesus' way says you don't have to blank. Write it in. There's nothing on the screen because that's your question to answer. Jesus' way says you don't have to blank. Is it win? Be recognized? Need an apology? Get the credit? Be seen? Be justified by others? Because we all have a blank, don't we? We all have a fill-in. The question isn't if you are driven by your own self-interest. The question is where? 
And how can I allow the gospel to enter those places and begin to set me free by inviting me up on the cross with Christ? Because this is what the gospel says, friends. You are dead in your sin. You are dead in your sin. It's not a question of if. It's a question of where in your life is your self-interest spring up and begin to bubble to the surface. It's not a question of if, but where. And how can I allow it, how can I allow the gospel to speak into that sin? The gospel says you are dead in your sin and you're powerless to overcome your obsession with self. You are powerless to do that. And we are willing to endure unbelievable stress and anxiety and drama and anger and bitterness and resentment trying to hold on to it. And this week is a reminder that we are all small and insignificant. If this week doesn't remind you of your place in the universe, I don't know what will. You are small you're insignificant, you're frail. And all of our little achievements and victories and awards are put into perspective when one invisible force can shut the whole world down. And this isn't to scare you. This is to set you free. And the only way to be set free is to take up your cross, is to uh, uh, accept the position you're in. And to say, God, I have been fighting a fight of self-interest for a long time. I've tried to work my way in that workspace. I've tried to get in with that social circle. I've tried to get my pound of flesh in that situation. And all it leaves me is stressed and anger, angry and bitter and tired. And then something like this happens and reminds us all how small and frail powerless you are and reminded where we sit in the universe and that's the start of being set free that's the start of being set free because Jesus on a cross shows you a better way a perfect picture he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. He self-empties, which is foolish to everyone else, and places himself low in the ground, and then God raises him. He puts himself low in the ground, and then God raises him up. And then Jesus says that you go, and you do it too. Replace stress and anxiety and drama and anger and bitterness and resentment with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And be that picture of the gospel to the world. Because what I, one of the things I always want to help you see is that the way of Christ, the gospel, the good news, isn't just some nice, kind, theological thing or some nice idea that floats up to heaven. But it's about how you actually live with your friends and your neighbors and your brothers and sisters and yourselves. It's how I approach a situation. It's how I choose to forgive. It's how I keep score. It's how I define success. It's how I view myself. It's the perfect picture. And if we did that together, as we talk about here, mission together, 
if we invited each other, if we welcomed each other with grace and peace, and we followed Jesus' way into the ground, a resurrection thing would come from it. And that's my prayer to you. It's my prayer for you watching this morning. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Let's join God. Let's join Christ in the ground so that a resurrection thing might come from it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that we get to see the example of these two men who risked their lives, who gave it all, God, so that your name might be known more greatly. Lord, may we follow you. May we have your mindset so that we can begin to ask ourselves the question, the hard question, what goes in that blank? And where, where, what do I need to put to death so that a resurrection thing might rise from the ground? God, we pray for our world. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are anxious. We pray for those who are nervous. May they feel today grace and peace. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen and amen.